So we're in a season of ministry, Jesus' pre-resurrection earthly ministry. We're in that final week, it's known as the week of passion. It's hard to pinpoint the exact day of the week that we're in. You can read different scholars or different historians that will place things at different time periods. Jesus' triumphal entry occurred on Sunday, no doubt. Monday morning is when Jesus cleansed the temple of the money changers. And then the rest of Monday, Tuesday, and kind of into Wednesday at least, Jesus is going, as all of the lambs were for Passover, a period of inspection. So he ends up having a, a series of conversations with the religious establishment that segues into teaching. Uh, Jesus is, is going back and forth. He has kind of a battle royale with the Pharisees, has some with the, the, the Herodians and the Sadducees, the power brokers of the day. And then in chapter 23, Jesus just kind of goes, he's kind of a renegade. He comes out, two guns, pulling off the hips, and he just fires away. It is the last thing Jesus will be saying to the religious establishment, and by extension, really all religion. And there's a passion in the way that Jesus is saying difficult things. Make no bones about it. Jesus has no problem speaking the truth, even when the truth doesn't tickle the ears of the hearers, but hits at the heart, that pricks the conscience, that may even upset someone. Jesus has no problem speaking truth. But always note, Jesus spoke truth not out of anger, not out of some vindication. He spoke truth in love. We see this. Jesus saying these difficult things, eight woes. Now you only issue a woe. It's kind of an ominous title of, of a thing. A woe. What's a woe? When a kid's about to run across the street and you care about that kid, you're going to what? You're going to say, whoa, 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 why? Because you're about to get smacked. You're about to get hit. You're about to enter into a dangerous zone. And so I'm saying, whoa, to stop you. Why? Because I love you. Because I care about you. I think what you're doing is wrong. I think it's evil. I have hard things to say about it, but I do love you. And I'm saying these things because I care. And Jesus, these whoa, whoa, eight of them in chapter 23. Before we get to chapter 24, let's get a running head start going back to verse 37. Jesus, there's this kind of crescendo. I wish we had audio of it to hear the tone, the cadence. Jesus saying these hard things, and then there's this pause. Luke tells us that he's weeping. Only two times Jesus wept. We're told that Jesus wept there at the tomb of Lazarus. One of his best friends, his BFF died, you know? And he's there at the tomb and he weeps. Even knowing he's going to call Lazarus forth, the humanity of Jesus. The loss, the understanding of the consequences of sin, the wages being death. Realizing that Lazarus was in a much better place. Think about that. Lazarus is the only guy I know of that's been reverse raptured. He's in heaven chilling with the homies, and then it's like, come back to earth. Uh, what? Come four days in glory. And then he comes back, and it's not like he's met with a whole lot of fanfare. They want to kill him. <laughs> Lazarus. Jesus weeps over his friend. And then he weeps as he says, verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And Jesus, he makes this statement. He says, how often I wanted 
to gather your children together. The only way that Jesus can make such a statement is to be divine. He's speaking as God, dealing with this group of people, back to Abraham. How often, I, Jesus speaking, I, not Jehovah, not Yahweh, me. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I wanted, but why could he not act? But you were not willing. And then he says, see, and I think there was this this exclamation, see, Jesus is there in the temple. He says, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now there are two things that are said in this moment that demand a little of our attention. First, Jesus makes an acknowledgement of the spiritual destitution of the people. And he illustrates this by, by, by pointing to the temple itself. He's saying, see, look. And what does he, he declare? He says, your house is left to you desolate. That word desolate is a very interesting word. Could be better translated as uninhabitable. What, what, why would he say it's uninhabitable? Well, if you go back to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel sees the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. The presence of God that, if you go to Leviticus, filled the tabernacle upon its dedication. And then the Shekinah glory of God that descended from heaven and filled Solomon's temple. Ezekiel sees that Shekinah glory of God depart. It exits over the altar and it ascends back up to heaven. Now, the children of Israel were taken captive into Babylon. And yes, they were allowed to return after 70 years, and they could rebuild the walls, and they rebuilt the temple. You can read these stories in Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, God uses to rebuild the temple. And when they're done, the people weep over what it looked like, because it was a shell of of its glory. Solomon's temple was quite a thing to behold. Zerubbabel's temple was functional. But it wasn't what it had been. And the people weep, they mourn. Now what's interesting is that temple, the second temple, what we would call, over the years, it ends up getting renovated by a man named Herod the Great. And when I say renovated, I mean, this went from a a, a fixer-upper to a Taj Mahal. I mean, the temple itself, basically a lean-to, I mean, for 60 or 70 years, this is a construction project. And the gold, they said that you could see the temple radiating in the noonday sun up to 10 miles away. There was imported marble. And, it, and aside from just the temple, you had the porticos and the porches. It was, it was a wonder of the ancient world. Even to the point that, that any notable Roman visiting the area would go and see the temple, the temple complex. And Jesus is, is saying, see this thing that you take so much pride in? It's uninhabitable. How so? The Shekinah glory of God never dwelled it. God never honored it. God never blessed it. God's presence was not there. 
Now, you got to think for a moment that that's kind of a, a, real, a real shocking reality. You don't have the Ark of the Covenant. You don't have the presence of God. And the Holy of Holies, guess what you would find? The place where once a year the high priest would go in with the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people, something that they did every single year. It was an empty room. There's nothing there. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no Shekinah glory of God. There's no presence. When we're told later on when Jesus dies on the cross that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, the most shocking aspect of that, which we'll get to, is that it exposed an emptiness, which is what religion had become. And Jesus is like, look at this place. See, it's uninhabitable. There's no one here. There's no one dwelling here. You're making sacrifices to no one that cares about your sacrifices. And then Jesus makes this prediction, this prophecy. He says, I say to you, you shall see me no more. And he's speaking to Israel, speaking to Jerusalem. You will see me no more till I say to you, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then this was a specific messianic promise recorded for us in Zechariah 12 verse 10. So Jesus is saying here, this temple is desolate, and this religion is empty, and I'm leaving. But I'm going to come back, is what he's saying. I will come back. You will see me again. We find here a prediction, a prophecy of the second coming. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which indicates a spiritual awakening and a revival amongst the children of Israel you're rejecting me now, Jesus is saying. And I'm not coming back until you accept me as your Messiah. Which we see prophetically fulfilled. Now, it's that backdrop, that context that we get to chapter 24. And again, there are no chapter verse breaks. So this is all kind of one flowing narrative. So Jesus, you'll see me no more. So Jesus went out and departed from the temple. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't pretend to be a Greek scholar. I do read people that read Greek scholars. I don't even like reading Greek scholars. So I read people that read them. And it's noted, it's pointed out about the way that chapter 24 opens. That Jesus went out and departed. That there is an emphasis on his leaving. That it was demonstrable. That it was intentional. In some regards it's dramatic. Jesus is like, I'm not coming back till you accept me. And then he marches out. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm departing. And his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. So Jesus has said some heavy things, and he's leaving. And the disciples are like, what you just said is kind of, maybe you haven't gotten a full tour, Jesus. And that's what they're doing. As Jesus is storming out there, like, well, look at this, and look at that. That's not totally desolate. Like, can you not admire some of this? And Jesus is making his way out, and he says to them, do you not see all these things? And he, he calls them things. It's nonchalant. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And again, we have here another prophetic utterance of Jesus. So he's marching his way out of the temple. The disciples, after Jesus declares this to be a desolate place, they're like, whoa, 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 look at this. 
He's like, let me tell you something. This place, it will be destroyed. And its destruction will be so absolute, so complete, that not one stone will be left upon another. Now, historically, we understand and we see the fulfillment, the actual literal fulfillment taking place about 40 years after Jesus makes this statement. When Titus Vespasian and the Roman legions sacked Jerusalem. And as the story goes, and, and we get solid, a solid record, an eyewitness account from a man named Josephus, who was in Jerusalem at the time, ends up becoming a bit of a traitor to Israel, so he has an allegiance with Rome. But he writes a chronicles. He, he chronicles the histories of this time period. He accounts that about a million Jews died in the siege of Jerusalem. And that as the walls were going down, the people fled to the one place that, that they felt they could secure, that being the temple. And whether it was an angry soldier or a drunken soldier, no one's quite, a, quite sure. But we do know that the temple caught fire. Now, if you examine the construction of the temple, the temple was built out of wood, all kinds of various woods. But then it was, it was laid over with gold. All kinds of, of precious metals. So you had an inside wooden structure encased in metal. And so the fire gets started on the inside and you have effectively created an oven. And we're told that it, get, it got so hot, it burned with such intensity that all of the gold, the bounty for a Roman soldier melted and because of it of its being liquefied it began to run the gold ran down down through the stone the limestone work of the temple meaning that in order to get to the gold literally the Romans would have to deconstruct the temple so that not one stone was left upon another in order to retrieve the gold fulfilling this very prophecy so Jesus making it clear <laughs> You take so much pride in this, this thing that's empty. I tell you, it'll be destroyed. Verse 3, so Jesus has exited. He's crossed the Kidron. He's on his way back to Bethany. He sits down, verse 3, on the Mount of Olives, which is again directly over from Mount Moriah where Jerusalem is. So he's got a, a, a picturesque view of the city specifically the temple and its complex. So he sits down on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples come to him privately, saying, so here's their questions. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? Now there's a few points of clarity that, that need to be established as we get into the second longest dissertation we have recorded of Jesus. The longest sermon uh, is the, the Sermon on the Mount that begins with the Beatitudes and whatnot. Earlier in the, the Gospel of Matthew, we looked at it in depth. This is the second largest dissertation. It's known as the Olivet Discourse because it was a discourse that took place on the Mount of Olives. The subject matter of this particular sermon uh, is designed to address the inquiry of the disciples. So he's made this statement about the temple itself being empty, will be destroyed, 
He's made this prediction about his return and what the parameters of that must look like. They come with questions. And so Jesus will provide through this sermon answers to their questions. Again, two points that need to be established. They ask, tell us when these things will be. And in context, you can, you can, you can reckon that it's the destruction of the temple. Right? Because that's what he's just gotten done talking about. And they're like, well, wait a second. When is that going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And again, why would they be inquiring about his coming? Because he's just referenced it. His return. Now, in their context, their minds, they don't understand Jesus is about to die and go away for a while. So their questions are are very elementary in how they're being uh, presented because they don't have all the details. When will the temple be destroyed? That's a big thing. And you're coming. When's that going to happen? And then thirdly, the end of the age. Better translated, the, the, the end of the world. Now, all these things in the Jewish mind all fit together. They're all generally kind of one, of, one event. For in their minds, the destruction for the temple to be destroyed, the Messiah would have to be there or soon arriving after that, and the, the end of the world is coming. Like They can't conceive that the temple would be destroyed in 70 AD and, and remain in ruins to the present day for over 2,000 years. That was inconceivable to the Jewish mind. If this temple were to be destroyed, it's over. Is kind of their thinking. So a lot of things would have to happen together, and we'd have all this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is how they're perceiving it. The second thing you have to understand before you approach the Olivet Discourse is the intention of Matthew to begin with. Matthew, if you go all the way back to our introduction, Matthew is a Jew, Levi. He is a Hebrew. And more specifically, he he grew up as a religious Hebrew. He was training to be a priest until he saw the the emptiness of of it all and jumped ship and became a tax collector. Like he went to the polar opposite. He was in seminary, and then he's like, I'm going to manage a strip club. Like, I mean, we just went way to the other end of the spectrum with Matthew. So he already has this perspective in mind, which is why when Jesus called him, Matthew didn't think anybody could call him. But he saw something in Jesus, relationship over religion, and he, he left it all. Unlike the other disciples, mind you. So you read about Peter and Andrew and James and John, guys that were fishermen, right? And Jesus says, hey, leave it and come follow me. And, you know, we're, we're told they drop their nets and they, they follow Jesus. Did they really leave it all behind? No. After Jesus' death, where will we find the guys? Back fishing. Like they didn't really leave it all behind because they could go back to it. Matthew's different. When Matthew left tax collecting behind, that role would be immediately filled and he could never go back to it. Like Matthew saw something in Jesus, it shook his heart, it gripped him, and he went all in. And he saw the emptiness of religion, he understood it, which is why he uses the word hypocrite more than anybody else in the scriptures. He knew it, it was hypocrisy. But Matthew is writing to present Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. Matthew is presenting, he's building the argument, he's making the case that Jesus is the promised Messiah slash Savior slash King. 
That's his intention. Not just the king of the world, but Matthew's more particular, the king of the Jews. That's his purpose. That's his intention. He is writing to the Hebrew people, presenting Jesus as the Messiah, which is why Matthew also quotes from the Old Testament more than anyone else in the Scriptures, as far as the gospel narratives go. He's constantly saying something about Jesus and then tethering it back to the Old Testament, how Jesus was the fulfillment of this and that. And he does it on and on and on and on. So he's presenting Jesus as the Jewish king. That's why he begins with a lineage. Matthew's gospel opens with a long list of names. Why? Well, to be king, you would have to establish a kingly heritage. So Matthew's whole purpose is is writing to the Jew. And his intention is to present Jesus as the king of the Jews. It's much different than, than Mark who's writing to present Jesus as a a servant, as a suffering slave. Mark writing with the attention of the the slave population, presenting Jesus as a servant. And Luke, being a doctor, presenting Jesus as as the son of man, the humanity of Jesus, which is why we get more of the narrative of his birth. That's significant. You get no mention of the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Why? No one cares how a slave was born. It doesn't matter. You're a slave. And then John writes with the intention of presenting Jesus as as God to the world. And John is writing much later than the synoptic gospels. And he's writing more with a church in mind that's also filled with Gentiles. Matthew is not doing that. In fact, there's no concept yet of the church and, and their Jewish understanding. And so when you approach the Olivet Discourse, Jesus will be talking about the end of things. He will be talking about the second coming. He will be talking about a great tribulational period. He will be answering their questions in regards to the when and the will. When will these things be and what will be the sign? He's writing it to the Jew. He's not writing this to the church. And that's an important caveat, because if you, if you take the things that are being written here, the things that Jesus is saying, and you try to apply them, I think, misguidedly to the church, it can lead to a lot of confusion, when that's not the audience. So we look at this, verse 4. By the way, I'll, I'll reiterate these points and add some more substance to why that's the way you have to take this as we work our way through it. Verse 4, so Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And again, they're wanting to know about his coming. He's like, be careful about my coming, because there will be other people that come, and they're deceivers. They're opposers, they're imposters. There's a word we use for it. We call it antichrists. Little a, which becomes a big A later. An antichrist is literally not anti in the sense of against Christ, but replacement. It's a replacement Christ, a replacement Savior. And Jesus is saying, be careful, take heed, don't be deceived. There will be people that will say, I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. And you will hear, Jesus says, verse 6, of wars. You will hear of rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. These are the beginning of sorrows. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Verse 10, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the nations in all of the world as a witness to all of the nations. And then the end will come. Now, is there some application for us as Christians within these verses? Undoubtedly. I think that there's... Um, quite a bit that from an applicational standpoint we can draw from the words that Jesus has to an, another group of people for a different reason. I, I, I'm encouraged as I read through this, see that you're not troubled when you hear of, of wars and rumors of wars. You know, it's very easy to turn on the news, to watch the news, to follow the news, to read your blogs and be very discouraged today was also discouraging back in like the early 30s like times happen and we can look at the news and we can be discouraged but what does Jesus say don't be discouraged like I'm still God I'm on the throne I have a plan it will come to fruition no one can interrupt that just relax see that you are not troubled don't be troubled when you see the things on the news I don't know if you're aware the world's going to hell in a handbasket eventually whether it's really soon or it's further out, I don't know. But it's going to end up, I know the destination. So I really shouldn't be that surprised. Well, can you believe blah, 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 blah? No, I, 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 can, I can absolutely believe it. Sinners, wickedness. You know, Zach, there just seems to be this like thing out there. It seems all orchestrated. It's George Soros. No, no, it's not George Soros. It's called the spirit of Babylon. That's existed since Babylon and before. There is an undercurrent about our fallen world that is satanically driven and orchestrated. There are evil powers behind all the things that we see. You're not imagining it. It's there, but don't be troubled about it. Know it, recognize it, see it. And then take heed that no one deceives you. Because there will be people that come along our path that will have the answers, or claim to, and will present themselves as a savior to all the things that trouble us. That's why we shouldn't be troubled by it, so we aren't deceived by Antichrist. False saviors. I don't care who's president of the United States. They're not going to fix it. Now, they can't make it a little worse, but they're not fixing it. The only thing that's going to fix the mess we see is Jesus' return. That's the fix. The gospel of the kingdom. Now, there's application here. And we see, you know, that many will be offended. There'll be betrayals and persecutions. We see, because of lawlessness abounding, the love of many will grow cold. We see that happening. Again, there is obviously application and what Jesus is saying. But, but, but what is he talking about? Again, Jesus is writing to the Jewish people. Now, up front, 
I hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. That's my theology. If that's not where you come from in regards to eschatology, that's fine. You can stay for as much of the tribulation as you like. I'm out of here. You want to leave in the middle? I was gone three and a half years before you. So I hold to that, that eschatology. And what I mean by the rapture of the church is that there is a final seven-year period, according to Daniel chapter 9, of God's prophetic dealings with the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel. We don't have time to go into Daniel 9, the 70 weeks prophecy, but once the Messiah gets cut off, I think that there is a pause. And then this last seven years will begin with the signing of a false peace between the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, of sin, and the, and the Hebrew people, Israel. Seven years. We'll get to what happens in the middle of that seven-year period. But it's a tribulational seven years. It's Daniel's 70th week. And its intention is for God to finish his prophetic dealings with the children of Israel, not the church. Or as Paul would write, the times of the Gentiles must be fulfilled. Again, prophetically, in regards to the way that the Bible presents uh, the end, eschatology, I believe that the church must be removed before the end begins. I say that because Paul will write that it, what is the one thing with straining the presentation of the Antichrist? Well, it's the Holy Spirit at work through the church. So I think the Holy Spirit, the church, has to be removed for this final seven-year period of God's dealing with the Hebrew people. So what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking to the Hebrew people. And he's telling them, not, not the sign that the end is near, but, but he defines this. Look again at verse 8. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Now you can divide the tribulational period into two, three and a half year sections. It's all tribulation, although you could make the argument the second half is worse. But it's still bad, all of it. And within our framework, we're told that these are the beginnings of sorrows. And if you go back, take heed that no one deceives you. The first seal, Revelation chapter 6, is the false messiah. Wars, the second seal, Revelation 6, 4. The third seal, plagues and disease. The fourth seal, death. The fifth seal, martyrs. Like you can, Jesus' explanations here fit with what's then revealed to John about what I would say is this first three and a half years. That we have an antichrist, we have war. We have, as a result of war, plagues and pestilence, and from that, death. Again, read Revelation 6 and on, and you get a better picture of the totality of what's going to take place. And what's the intention? God is dealing with the Hebrew people. He's bringing them to a point of repentance, when they're ultimately deceived by the Antichrist, to then come again at the end. He calls this the beginning of sorrows. The beginning. Revelation opens that these things must soon take place. And that's a poor translation. The idea of soon or shortly is, is not in chronology, but in, but in how the, the frequency of events and what they tell us. I've seen my wife give birth to three children. And the beginning of sorrows starts... 
about month one with the sicknesses, you know, the nausea. And then, like, the closer we're getting to birth, the more miserable she gets. Like, you're getting to month eight, and she feels like a beach ball. You know, she's miserable. But then, does that mean, like, she's having a baby yet? No, no, no. Like, what are the indications that the baby's coming? Birth pain. Contractions start. I, I always get, I'm very queasy when it comes to blood. I'm not good with it. So with Quincy, really with all three, but first, the first one with Quincy, it was my only, my main goal was not to require medical attention myself. Like that was, that was my, main, my main goal. I needed to, to drink some soda, keep my sugar up. I just was not going to pass out. And that there was one moment in time that I got a little curious, and I, and I looked, and I got white. And the nurse was like, you need to sit down. And I was like, yes, I do. And so I got really focused on watching the contraction machine. You know, I could, I could hold her hand. I could watch the contraction machine. And, like, I felt like I had a role. Because, you know, dee, dee, you know as, it's, as it's going, I can see it. I'm like, honey, hold on, it's coming. And she's like, no kidding. Like, I needed you to let me know the contraction's coming. Guess what? I feel it closer to the baby, what happens? Contractions become more frequent. They happen more quickly. It's the frequency of the events that indicate timing. So Jesus points, he's like, you guys want to know when I'm coming back. Second coming, not rapture. I hope you know that the expectation of the church, I don't long for the second coming of Jesus. That is not my hope. Because if, man, if that's it, I'm not sure I'm going to make it to it. And there's a whole lot of bad stuff that's going to happen the seven years leading up to it. Like my hope, my expectation is that I'm going to be raptured and removed before all that happens. That's the great hope. That's the great expectation. That's the idea presented all throughout Scripture that we're to take comfort in. But we find here at the beginning, these seven seals, six seals, the start of things. Note verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now that's an interesting phrase. This is not the word that we had used save in the context of salvation. And if it were, then we have a problem with the verse because it's saying that I can somehow do something to earn or merit salvation. Again, this can't be an application to the church. It has to be an application to something else. Someone that just endures and makes it to the end. And again, when you look at this seven-year period of time, in regards to the Hebrew people, Jesus is saying, if you make it to the end, you're delivered. You'll be saved. And we find that the armies of the Antichrist will turn their attention to the Jews that have fled out into the wilderness, and that sparks the second coming of Jesus when he comes and literally delivers them after they've repented and they've accepted Jesus, that there is a deliverance. Again, there's no application to that verse if this is to the church. There's no application to it. It has to be to the children of Israel. And what is the gospel that is preached during this time? It's the gospel of the kingdom. Hey, there's a kingdom coming. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, 
standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now pause. They want to know the sign. What should we be looking for that indicates your return, your arrival, the presentation? Jesus is like, well, there's a whole bunch of things that are going to be happening. That's the beginning of it. Take heart, endure. There's a lot of things that will happen. It's the, it's the precursor. It's the opening act. The sign that you should be aware of, looking for. And he's very specific. Jesus saying, when you see, so something happens that is visible, can be seen, is understood, the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And again, we don't have time to get into D Daniel's prophecies. But you can go to chapter 9, Daniel 9, as well as Daniel 12, where this, this abomination of desolation is mentioned. And what is it? It is when this, this antichrist, this man that has deceived the nations, this man that has created a, an accord with Israel for a period of seven years, at the three and a half year mark, according to Daniel, this man will enter into the temple, enter into the Holy of Holies, and will present himself as God. He will make a claim of divinity. Now that will remove the scales from the eyes of the Jewish people because this is an abomination. It is an abomination, which is even worse than a blasphemy. It's an abominable act. And what does it do? It causes desolation. Because it's from this point forward that great tribulation ensues. So Jesus is saying, hey, it's going to be bad. These things are going to be happening. There'll be an antichrist. There'll be war. There'll be pestilence. There'll be death. It's the warm-up. But when you see the abomination of desolation, which Daniel talked about, which Daniel wrote extensively about, at that moment, that's the sign that marks a very specific timetable to my second coming. It's three and a half years. Daniel's very specific, 42 months. From that moment, 42 months, Jesus' second coming occurs. Again, can't be a reference to the church because we're, we're given the idea of imminency, that, that, the, that the rapture of the church can happen at any moment, at any time, for any reason. It's not predicated. I can tell you exactly when Jesus' second coming will happen based on this singular event. I think you can actually go back even further to the signing of a false peace. And yet Jesus is saying, when you see the abomination of desolation, he's like, understand it. Standing in the holy place, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, wait a second. Again, if this is to the church, that makes no sense either, does it? Because it'd be like, hey, Christians around the world hunker down. But he's like talking to the Jews that are in Judea. You need to flee. That moment, you need to bolt. Bad things are coming. This is a sign. You need to get out of Dodge. I, I, should, I should add, if you're following with me at all, and I know this is a lot of information condensed. In order for the abomination of desolation to occur, which, by the way, Jesus is placing in a future context, right? So he's taking a prophecy of Daniel, and Jesus is saying, when you see it, meaning it hasn't happened yet, so that there are scholars that say, well, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes did this 200 years earlier when the Greek armies came into, and he set up a pig in the Holy of Holies, and there was this whole thing, that that's actually what the abomination of desolation. Well, not according to Jesus. 
Because Jesus places this in a future context. And then you'll have people that say, oh, well, this happened in 70 A.D. with Titus. There is no recorded event that fits the description of the abomination of desolation occurring in 70 A.D. It didn't happen. And so you're, you're, you're reading through this, you gain this understanding of it, but you're like, well, wait. Um, Zach, I don't know if you're aware, there's not a temple. And that's true. There isn't. There is the Temple Mount. There's a, a, a massive piece of unoccupied real estate that is the most hotly contested piece of real estate on the planet. It is occupied by two Muslim shrines, but there is a huge huge place. They're not 100% sure where exactly the temple stood. It's an interesting study on your own. Or you can talk to Josh. He can tell you all about it. Could there be a rebuilt temple? I think absolutely there has to be. Could that rebuilt temple somehow fit in with a peace accord with the Hebrew people brought about by the Antichrist? You would have to be a master negotiator, wouldn't you? To somehow be able to orchestrate events to bring peace to the Middle East to start with. But then to also incorporate a Hebrew holy site in conjuncture with Muslim holy sites. Ezekiel is given a rod to measure the third temple, the temple that we're talking about. And it's interesting that in the instructions of what he's to measure, he is supposed to not measure the outer courtyards because the outer courtyards was left to the Gentiles. I think there's a strong argument to be made that the temple can be built where the outer courtyard would have the Dome of the Rock and that both could exist on the same piece of real estate. I think there's a lot of evidence for that. Continuing on, so this is the sign. This is what you're looking for. Let those, verse 17, on the housetop not go down to take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Again, if this is to the church, I don't, I don't care at all about the Sabbath. But who would this be important to? A religious Jew. So flee Judea, housetops, that's the architecture of the area, very specific. Agricultural, don't go back to get you, like you, you see this happen, bolt. Don't pack a bag, you need to get out. And pray that this doesn't happen in winter. This is a refugee situation that doesn't happen in winter and that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Again, if this is to the church, a warning to the church, an exhortation to the church, it doesn't matter to me that it's on Saturday. And matter of fact, I'd prefer it to be on Saturday. You know, I was already off. Good day for the abomination of desolation. You know, watch the Georgia game at noon, the abomination of desolation at 4.30, and I'm on the way. You know, like, I don't care. But it seems to be specific to the children of Israel. For then, verse 21, there will be great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor ever shall be. And again, for those, of, for those I think, very well-meaning individuals that take a different approach to the passage, I would just ask, give me an example of that being fulfilled in any context. can't be 70 A.D. The Holocaust was way worse. A million Jews died in the assault of Jerusalem. Six million plus died in the Holocaust. That was much worse. And Jesus is saying, 
after this sign, what happens next is so bad. It's never happened before. It'll never happen again. And in fact, Jesus will say in another place that if he didn't restrain the days, no flesh would survive it all. Again, heavy application. He says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And again, people want to point to the church being the elect, but you can find that word being applied to the children of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. If possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Heavy. Heavy, heavy, heavy. And we have to stop there. So we'll pick up our examination of this Olivet Discourse uh, next Sunday.